It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not and, as uh, simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many more know, doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. I haven't decided yet, to be honest, which which way round I'll do them. Probably because I'll have to edit them both. So yeah, probably. Hello and welcome back to Tennis Unfiltered with me, James Gray of iNews.co.uk and the iNewspaper. For the last time in 2024, I'm joined by Calvin Beton and George Belshaw. There will still be a couple of podcasts in 2024, um, but they are specials. It's a, a bit of a get to know our uh, hosts uh, as I do special sort of personal episodes with Calvin and George that you'll hear on Christmas Day and I think New Year's Day or possibly even New Year's Eve as a special treat at the end of 2024, which means this is our last sort of newsy Tennis Unfiltered podcast. Um, I know we did our awards uh, kind of, you know, over the last two weeks, chaps, but uh, someone said to me, oh, hasn't it been a dramatic year of tennis? I wonder, I don't know, George, whether you think it really has been a dramatic... They're all dramatic years in tennis, aren't they? <laughs> I think I think the first half of the year was pretty dramatic. I kind of remember putting together a lot of these orders of play and thinking, God, we're covering a lot of like actual political, cultural ground here. <laughs> like Things that just aren't really about tennis. And it, it felt like we didn't speak about actual tennis for about four months in terms of the actual <laughs> a lot of vladimir putin <laughs> yeah exactly um so i think it has been pretty dramatic yeah it's probably i'd say the last month has maybe been the slowest month we've had for about three years i would say and it's still not been hard to fill the agendas um but no that's true yeah, yeah. um calvin i i wonder I, don't, I mean, I, I know that you will have already done your sort of post-season reviews and it's already 2024 in tennis season because you're in pre-season, but I wonder how you would reflect on, on this year. I mean, it's it's had ups and downs and lot, lots of things going on for you for certain. Uh, in tennis terms, in my yeah. play, with my players. Um, 
Yeah, it's been ups and downs, I think, to be honest. Um, we didn't have a great winter. I think autumn, some back end of summer and autumn was brilliant. Uh, Henry beat, reached third round, well, came back from his injury, which was a relief. Um, mm. Made third round of US Open. Um, Luke had a great autumn, like late summer autumn, won three challenges in a row. Um, and then lost a lot of close matches in winter. Like in terms of actual level, it didn't drop a great deal. But um, Henry obviously had a new partner. Um, but, and, you know, just lost a lot of close tie breaks, which I'm hoping even themselves out. Um, so, yeah, it was like, yeah, before that was kind of quite good. Um, yeah, I mean, both players, Luke's, I didn't, Luke's at career high at the minute, made a massive leap this year. Henry um, isn't his career high, but he missed the whole of grass season, which was, mm. uh, and Henry actually starts the year, I think, at the exact same ranking as what he did last year. Oh, really? Um, oh, which weird. is kind of a net plus because he missed the whole grass season. Um, yeah. So, you know, you'd imagine that with with the grass season, I'd have liked to think he'd have won one match. So, um, <laughs> at least. You'd think he would have, um, he would be higher than that. But yeah. yeah. Um, and then, yeah, just ready for um, ready for the new one. I'm, first time I'm be going to Australia. So, I'm looking forward great. to it. It's um, great. You're obviously in, in pre season now uh, at the NTC. I mean, tell us a bit about what pre season is like. Is it just, I mean, as you walk in, as you walk around the place, does it just feel like any other day? Like, you know, people are sorting courts and fanning around in the player lounge, or is there a different feel at this time of year? It's just a lot busier, I think. Um, not necessarily like in the in the cafe and that kind of thing. They're just the courts are a lot busier. There's no real empty court time, which you tend to get um, generally. But there, there's just like a lot of lot of the courts being used, that kind of thing. Um, yeah, other than that, um, it's the same same sort of setup, really. I suppose. Mm. Uh, and I know you want to talk about the Australian Open balls because I, 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 it's actually something I noticed, and it didn't. We were we were at UTS, and and you'll hear a little bit of, of uh, George and I at the Ultimate Tennis Showdown Grand Final uh, a little bit later on in the show. Uh, but I, it, it was weird. Like a ball bounced to me on Thursday when I was there for the media day, and I picked it up, and of course it said AO on it, Australian Open, because people practice with the Grand Slam ball that they're going to play with next. But it was so incongruous to be in an indoor centre in London, you know, five weeks before the Australian Open, looking in the Australian Open ball. But, but Calvin, this is this is what players do, right? They, they hit with the ball of the Grand Slam coming up generally. Yeah, they want to play with the, the ball that's coming up in the Grand Slam because most of the tournaments before that tend to use them. Um, mm. So they like to get it on as early as possible. And the player, there's, there's always a lot, there's currently a lot of chat amongst the players about the ball. So Luke's been practicing with... Um, it was Neil Skupski in Liverpool, and they have this year's Australian Open ball. Uh, the, 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 sorry, next year's Australian Open ball, the 2024 ball. Um, sure. The NTC, I think, thought they had that, but they don't. They have last year's ball. I don't really know the difference, but the players are very picky about it when they change them and that kind of thing, which I, I spoke with the players. They don't They don't seem to agree with me as, as a whole, or some of them do. I find it really strange that they take... I get it why they take this position up with like the US Open ball, the Wimbledon ball, that kind of thing. The Australian Open ball is the one that baffles me because it's it's the, the most different of all the balls, for starters, because it's created with the conditions in mind, which are 
it's it's a ball that, that that has been created to whether now whether it achieves this or not i'm not saying i'm not saying from what i've seen i don't think it does but the, the what they're trying to do is make a ball that is normalize a ball that copes with extremely warm and extremely humid conditions on a brand new hard court um and so the players want to practice with that ball because it it, it, it it apparently it, it moves a lot early so in the first 15 minutes you're playing with it, it moves a lot, almost like a cricket ball, I guess, in that respect, when a, a ball moves off the seam or that kind of thing. Mm. And then then it suddenly becomes really fluffed up and really slow. So it moves from going fast, it changes from going fast and moving a lot to not moving at all and fluffing up and being really slow until you change the new balls and then the whole process repeats itself. Now, what mm. I don't really get, which I've said to some of the players, but they wholeheartedly disagrees i don't get why you would want to play specifically with this ball that is made for outdoor warm humid conditions in a cold damp old hardcore in liverpool or a normal hardcore at normal normal heat at the national tennis center because you're not gonna get anything of the feeling of what that ball does other yeah. than you pick it up and it, it says Australian Open in your hand. Because <laughs> if it if it is a specially made ball and it is it does do different things, you're not getting anything. So you might mm-hmm. as well just play with another tennis ball because you it, you're 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 you're, comp- you're preparing with a comp- whether you have the actual ball or not, you're preparing with an entirely different ball to what you're going to get because all balls it's a combination of balls plus conditions. So so would you say? There is a slight advantage for being an Australian at this time of year where you can use the ball and kind of replicate oh, the conditions. 100%. 100%. Oh, not even just Australian. You know, imagine the, the guys out in uh, who are training in Marbella will definitely get a, a benefit from it. Anyone who's training in Dubai will get a benefit from it. But it's not a ball that has been made for indoor courts in general. Certainly not normal temperature indoor courts. Certainly not, and absolutely certainly not cold, old indoor courts um so yeah I, I but the players still will always want to play with that ball mm. and what what i find strange is that i think they might be doing themselves a disservice because i think they're getting more of a different ball with that than they would if they say played with a standard dunlop um fort or dunlop atp or something so they're kind of doing themselves almost almost a, a, an unfavor, you know, making it even harder for themselves. By they're not practicing with the ball. They're not practicing. They, they, trying to think of the way to explain this. The, the way that Dunlop have made, tried to make the Australian Open ball is that it, so it behaves normally on mm. in warm and in, in hot and humid conditions. It behaves like yeah. a normal tennis ball when you put it in those conditions. So the, I think they were better off just playing with a normal tennis ball rather than this ball that, I mean, it's almost like I don't know. You describe it, it's like a Super Bowl, from what they're saying, um, is that that changes depending on the conditions. It's not going to change. Mm. And there were a lot of complaints last year about the Dunlop ball as well, because um, I was trying to write a big thing about it. Needless to say, Dunlop were not keen to talk about it. Um, I mean, which I always. I'll say on, sorry, on the on. ball as well, James. Sorry, James. I'll say on the ball as well that it shouldn't be like that. You shouldn't, in any conditions, you shouldn't have a ball that is is that completely changes after fifteen minutes. The, the, mm. the, the point is it's supposed a ball's supposed to be durable and last for the whole of a ball change and you kind of accept that it's gonna start getting a bit old and slow in the last couple of games. But that's mm. it. You shouldn't get fifteen minutes and then it's a mess. Mm. 
Well, that was the ball they were using in London. And as I say, it was uh, it was strange to see them doing it in the UTS Grand Final. George and I were lucky enough to be there. And um, this is how we got on. So, welcome back to Tennis Unfiltered Live. And we're, we're in a quite a unusual event here. It's the ultimate tennis showdown, which does sound a little bit like something going on in space. And... Um, Frankly, it might as well be going on in space for all the, that we understand the rules. As far as I can tell at the moment, it is a tie-break. Uh, we're sitting here, me and George Belshaw, who uh, has dragged himself out of bed after... Um, I think I'd caught a marathon week, George, right? Yeah, it's been um, one of the heavier ones. <laughs> Which is probably what Alexander Bublik's been on as well, to be fair. Um, I have to believe he calls it pre-season. <laughs> yeah, quite possibly. Um, we're here in the Edexcel Arena in East London. There's about 2,500 people with us on Saturday afternoon. Um, and we're here for Patrick Muratoglu's extravaganza. He says he doesn't want to change tennis, but there is a lot of stuff going on that most people wouldn't consider tennis. Um, for starters, here we are sitting courtside, George. We're chatting away. People are able to walk along the sides of the court, in the alleys, you might say. That feels like at least one positive change. Hmm. Yeah, I, I mean, te tennis is a bit stuffy that way, isn't it? I mean, you can get really buggered at main events if you go off for two games and they turn out to take 30 minutes because Novak Djokovic is bouncing the ball a hundred times or something or you know it's a really dramatic uh, couple of games and you have to stick it somewhere like Wimbledon and you just stand outside and you're hearing just some clapping and you're not allowed to stand up and stick your head through it's a bit rubbish. It's hugely frustrating and so in that sense I mean I've always said it like it was quite funny yesterday I can't remember who was saying it but they were saying uh, Alexander Bublik is now asking the crowd to make as much noise as possible on Holger Rune's serve while standing eight feet inside the baseline. Uh, needless to say, it has made no difference to Holger Rune, who hits a fine inside-out winner and puts his hand to his ear because uh, he's got a 13-11 lead in the first quarter, whatever that means. Um, the the 15 seconds between, between points, George, I didn't think I would notice it live being that short. But it definitely rushes the game on, doesn't it? It does, yeah. I can't really decide if I like it or not, actually. I mean, I think there's a degree about getting the ball in play quickly, but it does, it does feel almost too rushed to a degree. And I think sometimes, like in big matches, that little bit of time to pause between a point can build some of the tension, whereas this just feels like bang, 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 bang it goes. So I wonder if there's a happy medium of 20 or something. But. Yeah, I, I definitely think so. Um, now we're just reaching the end of the quarter where it somehow becomes first to 15. Basically, if you're leading the quarter at the end of it, there is a redemptive chance for your opponent. So it's 14-11 at the end of the quarter there uh, when the time ran out. The umpire announces first to 15. So Runa just has to win one point to win the quarter, which he has, it's 1-0. But if Bublik had gone and won five points in a row, he would then have won the quarter. And they're interviewing him now between the can't help but notice they're not interviewing Sasha Bublik, which is what we hope to be doing uh, afterwards. So hopefully he won't have talked himself out. I mean, the, the, what you'll notice here, and you probably can't hear it, but Holger Runo, I should say, is blowing. Like, it, it is physical. It's eight minutes with very little break, really. It wasn't that physical a quarter in terms of length of points. And obviously you've only got one serve at a time, which maybe actually slow, like speeds things up a bit. Um, but it's certainly... <laughs> We've just received a message from Calvin, who's watching from the comfort of his sofa uh, in Barnsley. I've absolutely no idea what is going on with this scoring. Uh, Calvin, I think that makes three of us, to be honest. But it's quite fun. Um, I would probably enjoy a beer with it. 
Uh, and, and good they are now interviewing Alexander Bublik. That, that does seem more fair. Um, needless to... <laughs> I don't know how much he's going to talk, which, which concerns me for our meeting with him a little bit later. He's going full monosyllabic with Jenny Drummond. I feel a little bit sorry. Well, George, it's four quarters gone between Alexander Bublik and Holger Rune, and we're going to sudden death. In a clutch situation, Rune or Bublik? <laughs> well, we've just seen Bublik. You don't really call it double fault here, it's just fault. With only one serve, a single fault from Alexander Bublik on match point, uh, which George Belshaw, to his credit, called before he even hits the ball. Um, George, we've had a bit more time to settle into the format to understand things. Um, in Holger Rune's words, it's still tennis, but it's wrong. Or it's weird, I should say. Uh, when, it, when the follow-up question was, why is it weird, Holger? And he said, that's a stupid question. George, why is it weird? It's just a lot going on, isn't there? There's kind of sensory overload all around, you know, lots of blaring of music between points. It's quite quick. I mean, maybe a little bit too quick for me, possibly, but... Um, they're interviewing players quite regularly, which has been <laughs> a mixed experience. It's been a lot of F-bombs from Sasha Bublik. I can only hope we get a few from him ourselves a little bit later on. You can probably overhear in the background uh, him being interviewed by Jenny Drummond in, in the box as he prepares for his, his sudden death against Runa. Um, George, there have been moments of tennis breaking out, right? Like, it has actually been... Maybe, like normal tennis matches, take a bit of time to sort of warm up and get into themselves. It's in some ways, this has as well. That last quarter went down to the deciding point, and it, it felt like Holger Rune was having to think on his feet a lot because Bublik was mixing things up. And I, I didn't think I'd say this, but actually, the, the card... I think it's quite a good addition from like a mental perspective. It's quite interesting. So the card is uh, can be played at each player's discretion. Next point counts triple. Now, obviously, what you should do there is play it on your serve. Alexander Bublik has been playing it on return and has won almost every time. It, you know, Rune just looks like he's freezing and Bublik's making a lot of movement and he's trying to get in his head. And Yeah, it's quite interesting, that psychological aspect of like trying to shit out your opponent. Yeah. We'll see how it goes in deciding point coming up. There it is. Holgeruna wins in sudden death, uh, which turns out was not quite sudden death. It was whoever wins two consecutive points. Uh, and as possibly the most uh, staged racket smash I've ever seen. Um, I know for a fact that organizers told players before, George, that they were encouraged to smash as many rackets as they can. Um, but imagine my surprise when Alexander Bublik bottles a sudden death point. Yeah, I mean, he actually played the point, the first one to win it quite well. He set himself up. There's a brilliant drop shot that Rune uh, couldn't get to to kind of give him the chance. And then he's just narrowly missed a forehand wide. But um, yeah, kind of no shock that Rune got over the line. And really, Rune looked like he checked out this whole bloody thing until uh, this back end of the... Um, fourth quarter you could forgive him for checking out George hope to speak to Sasha Bublik coming up I'm Alex Rodriguez and I'm Jason Kelly from Bloomberg this is The Deal each week you're here as in conversation with business icons this show will explore deal making across sports media and entertainment that is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not as uh, simple you know, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many you know, more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal 
Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. Uh, Sasha, it feels like a format that maybe Holger doesn't enjoy because he wants to play a bit slower. And were you happy to play faster? It feels like a very fast format. Well, yeah, format is okay, but for me, what I miss is the first serve. It's always a challenge for me, so, but yeah, it is what it is, we gotta play. We always, I'm always on, on to all UTS uh, events because I really like the format, so, but the, the only thing I miss is the first serve. How often did you find yourself trying to hit a first serve? Did you, did you hit many, or what do you think? I hit a few today, I hit a few today when I felt like that's, uh, I may use some luck, which was not on my side today, so yeah. What from a tournament like this do you take? You know, we're three weeks away from the Australian Open. How useful is it for your pre-season to play this kind of thing? I think it's very demanding physically because we play very quick, long rallies between the points. We cannot really, you know, we don't have any free rallies because it's a one-serve format. So I think it's very good for your fitness and uh, to see uh, where you are. And just tell me where you are uh, with a couple of weeks till Grand Slam. You'll obviously be seeded in Australia and and have high hopes there. How do you feel in, in your game and in your body? I think I played well. I think um, I'm in a good mood. I'm still in the, in the in the preparation, so I'm not really ready to play the full five setters yet. But we'll get to it. Where, where are we going to see you next? Adelaide. I look forward to it. Cheers. Well, we've just stepped off the uh, main arena there after watching Jack Draper beat a retired Gail Monfils. George, I didn't think we'd be sitting here talking about like a, a news line or tournament regulations at what is basically an exhibition, and yet here we are. Um, it, we are told that no medical timeout allowed. Uh, that appears to be the rules. Um, I, the, the man who probably could tell me the exact rules just walked past. <laughs> no medical timeout. Only at the changeover. There you go. And that was the problem for Gail Monfils, who um, slipped behind the baseline uh, and rolled his ankle quite nastily, George. It did look pretty painful. Yeah, it didn't look good. And um, we were just having a quick chat with Jack's coach um, afterwards as well. And he was kind of saying, you know, you really need to strap that up quickly that's the kind of bigger issue with that sort of injury because it swells quite a lot so it's trying to keep that kind of swelling down um i mean i have to say i think they should have just bloody taped it shouldn't they really because <laughs> all we've got is a match ending um when he looked willing to try and continue if he was given the right circumstances to do so and, and and jack certainly was willing to give him you know all the time that he needed you know jack was going out of his way going over talking to patrick yeah. talking and to the, the td and the, and the kind of excuse that it's going to stop the play of the game. Well, we just watched two blokes kind of arguing for five minutes and no one knew what the hell was going on. The announcer just started going, I wish I could tell you more about what's happening here. I have no idea. <laughs> and everyone else is just out there like, what is going on? Calvin was helpfully kind of 
texting us the kind of TV commentary where you can hear a bit more of the kind of conversations happening. Um, but yeah, the rule just feels like it actually created the problem it was trying to get around in the first place. I mean, I'm, I'm not relieved, but it, it does prove that even if you want to have a Mickey Mouse format, you know, or, or do things differently, you still need strong protocols yeah, because yeah, yeah. these things will happen. Um, I do also feel desperately sorry for Gail Monfils because, you know, what is it today? It's the 16th of December. The Australian Open starts in less than a month. You know, ankle sprains, there can be funny things. You don't know how long. It's probably going to be pushing him out of whatever was his pre-tournament plan. Not, not ideal. No, it's not. Um, I mean, I guess the one vague positive for him is that he's been there and done it all before hasn't he it's not like the first time big injury or something he's had injury problems he knows he can come into matches quite unfresh or without match practice and still have a good go so I think he'll be there at the start line for Australia no problem and unless you know something more serious than we've realised right now but I'm guessing not um, and at this stage of his career I'm sure he'll just be happy to pick up that first round check to be honest and <laughs> Uh, and first time you've seen Jack Draper up close for a while, I fancy. Yes. Um, probably since, well, I, I actually wouldn't know even the last time a, a man of the world such as yourself who has an actual job so rather than swanning around the world watching yeah, tennis has seen him. Good question. Um, have, I, have I been to it? Uh, well, we watched Draper and Junior Wimbledon. I think that might be the Junior end. Wimbledon final. Uh, do you think he's match. progressed in that time, George, in those six years? out a bit more, hasn't he? Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, we, we were talking a bit about his forehand, weren't we, today and what that shot's like. And I'm... You know, I think my memory of him against the goats saying, um, which if you've been listening to the podcast from its uh, beginnings, has been a long running joke. <laughs> um, he's not the goat. He's not the goat. We, we are probably he's Taiwan's goat. That. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I think on the grass, he, he always looks like a very big serve, first forehand put away. But actually, and he spoke about this a bit afterwards, the big thing he's trying to develop in his game, and he was talking about Novak, Rune, other kind of players at the top of the game, Sinner Alcaraz, is the heaviness of the ball that he's trying to really develop. And you could see that forehand is, it's got heavy spin, it's got a lot of rotations, it's, you know, there's a big kind of crunch in it. And Monfils was pushed back quite a lot. I guess it's just not quite as good a finishing shot as you kind of think in your head it, it's going to be. And maybe that's probably... The aspect to slightly improve on while the baseline shot itself is, I think, good. It's just, can he put things away a bit quicker? And, you know, we know he's had a lot of issues with his body. Um, Shortening points would be handy. That would be good, yeah. Yeah, I think just the ability to flatten out. I'm sure he has the ability. It's just, you know, may, I sometimes think it's a mentality thing. I mean, Calvin, I know, will will disagree with me. Just, just as a matter of course when it comes to actual tennis stuff. But for me, it does feel sometimes like having the bravery to go up. And, you know, someone like Roger Federer only was always aggressive on forehand, but only really started doing it in a big way when he had to because he was like, no, my body won't do long points. I've got to get short points where I can. And, you know, Calvin's talked a lot about it with Murray not being able yeah. to do it and just not having the mentality available for him to do it. Um, the, the side point, George, is that Jack Draper's through to the final four. Yeah, well, well, well that was quite a hilarious line. In the, uh, so you've got a little kind of uh, press huddles they do afterwards, kind of a little, uh, what, what's the bloody word for it? Mixed zone, yeah, technically. So you can tell I've been out of the game far too long. <laughs> <can't even laughs> not long enough. Not <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, so the, in that huddle, there was quite an amusing quote from someone who presumably works here saying it's he's had the, the greatest start to a UTS 
in its entire history. Its entire history. Which is what, three years? years? (laughs) I'm not entirely sure. But uh, yeah, Jack Draper through to the final four of UTS. Game one feast. um, Well, I would say an injury doubt for the Australian Open. I didn't think we were going to come here and get a news line, George. But um, your final thought on the, the whole event? I mean... We were talking to, to um, obviously, James Trotman, Jack Draper's coach, who seems a relative fan of the format and a few people around. I mean, but some good points. Yeah, I, th- I think we've enjoyed it, haven't we? I mean, it was... It, I think it... We, we, we discussed the scoring system a little bit and how that works and whether time actually can be a negative sometimes. Like, I, I, I appreciate what they're trying to do in terms of pulling time shorter so people know when a match starts, when it finishes, etc. But actually with a kind of point scoring system, you do get a lot of dead time because if someone's miles ahead and they've used the cards for three extra points and you know they're not coming back, you're watching an inevitability. Whereas in tennis, there's always that, you know, I gave the example of Sabalenka Mukova from the French Open this year, where you might think in a set, this is done, Sabalenka's in the final, and then just mentally she collapses. You have to kind of go over the line. So I, I think it actually time in tennis does take out one of the, the best selling points about it. I mean, but as a, on the other hand, it's good to do things differently and mix it up. And I think it's it's quite fun. I think people will enjoy it. 35 quid a ticket's all right. Could be worse, in, you know, compared to some of the other things like the Labour Cup, which is an absolute disgrace. Um, and you know who's going to be playing and you know when they're going to be yeah. playing and it seems to start on time. I think we're also interested in the long-term economics of it, aren't we, I think? Because <laughs> um, they're paying an awful lot of money. Um, you know, I think I was told... Rublev could be on to win a million in prize money loan. US. Dollars, right. Um, and they are all definitely getting big appearance fees, which we love talking about, but I've, I've not managed Organisers never like talking about. <laughs> We've not got any figures, but I'm pretty sure they'll be sizable in terms of the 100,000s. Mm. Um, so you're paying a lot already on players. It's quite a small venue here. They're coming to quite expensive cities, so it's not really cheap to kind of get stadium but they've got a lot of sponsorship and it's quite weird money heavy sponsorship from places you are kind of not sure where the money's coming from or going to so i think there's quite (laughs) there's some allegations there george that i probably have to cover off you know it's a lot it's a there's a lot of speculative investment i think Mm -hmm. is what i would say like so you've got kind of ai companies who you know Half the thing with AI is speculatively trying to bet on the right horse at the mm. minute in terms of the investment. And it seems like those horses are all trying to bet on something kind of speculatively here. Um, so I just mean, you know, there's potential cards that could come falling down if, if, they, if it doesn't prove itself at some point. But I think they'll go for a bigger venue in London next year. They're talking about maybe Coverbox, they're suggesting as a potential. Which is about 5,000 off the top heads. So it's about what? double the capacity that it is yeah. here. And I think that, I think that you know, with the names they've got this year, I think they probably could sell that out. Yeah. Maybe not all the sessions, but close. I think the, the other the other key point for London, particularly in winter, is we've gone from having the ATP finals there every year. We've gone, you know, we have the events at the Albert Hall normally. I, I don't know if that actually ran this year. No. So people do come out and watch a bit of winter tennis and like a slightly different environment. So there's definitely a gap in the market there and... Who knows? Maybe. George Belchel's come and get me plea exactly, for London yeah. for the well, O2 Arena. Better nicknames and I'll give better interviews than Holger Rune, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> well, never be afraid to think differently on Tennis Unfiltered. Never be afraid to think differently indeed. And we very rarely are afraid to think differently on uh, Tennis Unfiltered. Calvin, you were the, the voice missing from that particular broadcast since you were back in Barnsley. Where would you rather be? 
um, and you were sort of absorbing it on TV, which is quite good, really, because it gives you a, a different perspective from from me and George. Um, how did you find it as a product, as a viewer, and then as someone in tennis? How did you find it there? Um, I my overriding thought is that I'm I'm not opposed to trying different scoring systems and that kind of thing. Um, my overall overriding view was that there was just too much going on. I mm. thought it was just there was too much, too many changes um to it i don't think it's got any longevity in actual professional tennis it's as an exhibition event it's quite fun i think if but i do think they need to rein in some of the things like yeah. it was just like even like little things like the music playing like between points when there's only like four seconds like is there a need for that like do you need to start <laughs> playing a tune when there's just four seconds of, of dead space in between it um I just, I mean, I did it just watching it, and I can pick up rules pretty quick. I didn't ever really know what was going on. I thought, but wasn't there some rule that you get more points for hitting a winner or something? Or have they ditched that rule? Well, I thought that as well, but the, the scoring system seemed very one note to me. <laughs> I thought when I went to the skills challenge on Thursday, there was all sorts going on. Like the longer the rally, the more points you got and stuff like that. But yeah. as far as I can tell, the scoring system was just one point per point, uh, except if you played your your magic you know three times card and there was some controversy around that as to when people were playing it and whether they were playing it or not and, and all sorts of things so. i thought as well i mean there were other things like i mean the players really a couple of the players really need to be ashamed of themselves on those on-court interviews how <laughs> i thought like genuinely rude to the two commentators um yeah. and if you're gonna if, if the play it's an exhibition event if the players are not gonna be able to do that then just don't do it because it's not fair yeah. on the commentators to be going yeah. to them and having to go to them, like, I get it. If they want to do that, then I've been in that situation when I've done a bit of commentary on on a pro league and you just went to the winner of the set and that's fine. Like the loser of the set is just not going to want to talk. And if, you know, some of them are mature enough to be able to respond to it, like Gail Monfils, and some of them are just really, really ignorant and rude, like um, Holger Rune was, I thought, on two, yeah. two consecutive occasions. Like it wasn't, I'm always, you know, I'm kind of up for a bit of, personality and that kind of thing but it wasn't even personality it was straight up rude towards the two commentators yeah and you know george and i were talking to someone backstage involved in the tournament um not from the tournament side but who, who was involved in a coaching capacity and saying something very similar like you know if you, if you if you come to an event like that if you're willing to take the the check and you know you've got to play ball like that's that's part of the whole thing. And, you know, it's different if it's a tour event and it's like, look, this is an important match. I really don't want to do this nonsense. It's not what I signed up for. But it's not a tour event. It is an exhibition event. And they don't like calling it that, but that's what it is. Yeah, I think you probably do have to just just take it on, you know, take it on the chin and, and try and be a bit. But, but I'll tell you what, Calvin, you know, to kind of give Holger Runa some defense, it's a really physical format. Like with with only 15 seconds between points, um, with no second serve, which is usually where you can buy a bit more time to get your breath back and miss your first, um, and the eight-minute quarters, it like they were all blowing a lot, like they're all blowing really hard. And you know, Gail Monfils went down injured, and I did think that was partly just because he was starting to really blow hard, um, that he just didn't pick his feet up and he and he rolled his ankle. So uh, you know, it's obviously not the perfect defense because, as I say, I think I think it's an exhibition event and you should play by the rules, but. Um, it it did, it did really it did make me realize mm, the actual tennis scoring system has a lot of merits as well. Like it's not it's not perfect, but also there there are good things I, to it. I well. think that's the thing though that it, it, I do think one of the great things that tennis has is the scoring system, and mm. 
This one just felt like, like I say, it felt like it just had too much going on. Like the three point, the, the three points for you sort of play the three point card. Yeah. I mean, the, even at the end of it, like what I get the quarter thing, but then at the end of it, it's like when the time runs out, just the person who's in the lead has to win one more point. Exactly. Yeah. I think it's to stop you basically like running the clock down. Like it's to right. make sure you have to, but you can still run the clock down. Again, it's an exhibition. Like, why would you be doing that? Like, yeah, yeah. I, well, I, and, and to not call it an exhibition, to pretend it's not an exhibition is just like, just yeah. daft. I mean, yeah, the excuse is you get paid per win, but like you're also getting paid a lot of money just to be there, so it's not it's not the same. Um, George, are we uh, Jack Draper incidentally won it as a wild card. He bags five hundred and forty odd thousand dollars, which is the biggest payday of his career, um, and that's not including the appearance fee undisclosed. Uh, so about four hundred and thirty thousand pounds, I worked out. Uh, beating Holger Rune in the final. George, do we do we take anything by that? I mean, do, do, do we get, you know, does it change what we think about Jack Draper ahead of the Australian Open at all? <laughs> um, not particularly. I mean, I, I don't think there's any harm beating a guy like Holger Rune even in this ridiculous format. I think, you know, there's still something about feeling good in your shots and, you know, Rune was being a bit of an arse, but it did, you did get the sense he actually did want to win these matches he was in because he's kind of just a bit kind of, I don't know, weirdly focused and uh, gets a bit nasty at times. But, I mean, look, he, when we spoke to him, he was a bit like, oh, I think the best thing I'll get out of it is good cardio ahead of it. You know, lots of things aren't that comparable about this. Um, obviously, still hitting some shots, it's good to kind of get a bit of a feel on the court, but it's going to be very, very different out there. Um, so probably not amazing amounts to take forward. But he, he at least tried to claim there were some things, unlike Bublik, who was just like, I will take absolutely nothing from this. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Sasha Bublik not taking something that serious. I think there are probably tour events that Sasha Bublik gets to the semi-finals of and he goes, I'll take nothing away from this other than the prize money and the points. So, um, yes, I don't think we should read too much into that. Cal- Calvin, not not much to read in. I mean, good, good that Drapes gets through a couple of physical challenges without any seeming after effects, but maybe that's about it. Yeah, um, I find it a strange time in the calendar, to be honest, that it comes kind of like when you think that players are like maybe one or two weeks into their preseason, and I don't know how that then fits in with the remainder of preseason. Um, mm. Bit different for Drapes, because I guess, because he didn't play necessarily a full season, so it's not yeah. like he would need physical rest in terms of his body burning out. He's had a few injuries, but you know, I think in actual fitness terms, he'll be fine. Um, yeah, I think you know, I think he'll be a threat at the Aussie Open. It's just again, as always with Drapes, it's like if he's fit, if he's healthy, he's he's a nightmare draw for anybody in it, as we saw at the US Open. Mm. Indeed. Um, right. Well, we will talk much more about the Australian Open and before the Australian Open and Jack Draper and and all those things uh, when the new year comes around. But as promised, we've got more of your questions to get through from the mailbag, as also promised. We won't get through them all. There are loads of them and we do our very best and lots of them are the same. Well, some of them are the same anyway. So um, we will try and pick up the ones that are multiply uh, mentioned and do our very best. Uh, We're going to start with Max, who says, first off, love the podcast. Great. Really good start that, Max, because you'll always get that read out. Um, (laughs) Secondly, this may be a little out of left field, but there are rumours on Twitter that Anna Ivanovic is coming back to the women's tour in 2024. If it's true, how do you rate her chances in a comeback? It's been a while, but her forehand was lethal. Yes, people would have seen uh, pictures and even videos of Anna Ivanovic uh, having a hit. She's, of course, 
uh, 36 years old, but a French Open champion back in 2008, uh, an Australian Open uh, finalist that year as well, a former world number one. Um, she retired back in 2016, but seems to be hitting the ball again. George, I don't have any uh, info on exactly how likely this comeback is, but do you have interest in it? Would, would this throw a little little cat among the pigeons in the WTA? <laughs> um, I mean, I'd have interest in it in the same way I've got interest in... Wozniacki coming back, and I think Anna Ivanovich would be potentially capable of winning a couple of matches. Do I think she can come back and mix it with players like Sviontek? No, not really. Um, I thought Ivanovich was a good player. Um, obviously, had that particularly good 2008 and did reach world number one, but I, I, I don't know. She, did, she didn't do masses beyond that, did she really? It kind of The rest of it, she was a bit so-so for quite a long time. She was good, but not not someone I'd be looking at and thinking, oh, Igor's fiance needs to be really worried. You know that. Um, and she's 36 as well, so if you've not really been playing competitively from 30... Well, you say 2016 she retired, so what does that make her? 30? Yeah, not played a Grand Slam since losing in the first round of the 2016 US Open. Yeah, so she'd have been, what, 29, 30 then? Mm-hmm. Good so. maths, George. Impressive stuff. Um. So no, no, I don't think there'll be a great comeback. If I'm being perfectly honest, if it if it is true, but we'll see. I guess my only thought, um, and it is a, a mere thought; it's not based on anything, is that Alina Svitolina came back after becoming a mother and wasn't a different player, but had a different steel to her. Like, I don't think we always backed Alina Svitolina's bottle, and she came back and had an awful lot of it. Anna Ivanovich. Like 10 years younger though, right? Well, yeah, okay, which obviously helps. And Anna Ivanovich <laughs> has gone away and had three kids. <laughs> so, like, it's a little bit different. Um, and you will remember that she's married to Bastian Schweinsteiger, of course, um, which is the uh, the great celebrity couple of the sort of mid-teens. Um, I, I don't know. I just, I, just, I just think it's an interesting idea, you know. It's interesting. I'll tell you what, though, George. <laughs> the queue for wildcards is growing ever longer. If you're someone who is hoping to pick up Grand Slam wildcards, the idea of Anna Ivanovic coming back yeah. I mean, isn't we, a great one for you. We were having a bit of a chat about this, weren't we, on, on our way back from UTS at the weekend about kind of wildcards and where we thought Raducanu's place would be in this. But Cal, I'm sure Calvin's going to shout at me for saying this, but if, if I'm a tournament organiser, Raducanu is well ahead in the queue than Ivanovic. Calvin, you're tournament director of the Australian Open. And you've got two emails, one from Emma Raducanu and one from Anna Ivanovic. You've only got one wild card left. Who are you saying yes to? Just, I mean, you give it to Raducanu. Of course you would. <laughs> yes. That's good. Well, That's the correct right. answer. <laughs> I've, got, I've got to be honest. I'm, I'm not remotely interested in this Anna Ivanovic. <laughs> <laughs> like, like she's been gone for like seven years and like, you know, she was all right. She won a slam, I think. And But also every match I watched her play, she'd serve about 50 double faults. <laughs> like you know, like I, I don't. It's just this kind of stuff. Like you know, how long they're going to be around? They're going to play a few tournaments and take a few wild cards, and it kind of starts to make the whole tour look a bit exhibitiony. If you have too many of those players coming back, like Wozniacki and Ivanovic, they're not really there for the long term. It's like legacy type players, and I don't know if I'm. You know, she can do what she wants. Obviously, she's very entitled to it. I just don't think it's much of a. Don't know who'd be interested in it really. I guess it's if you're coming back, like it's a good point you make, Calvin. If you're coming back to come back, not just coming back to, you know, 
I, I don't want to like, call out Milos Raonic here because I don't think that's fair. Like he, he had a career that was obviously really hindered by injury. But if you're just coming back because you want another go for a bit, you know, play a couple of tournaments and then retire again. Whereas like someone like Svitolina, she, she has come back to come back. Like she's come back to, to resume her career. Yeah, but Svitolina never retired though. She just had a baby. No, no, that's true. Yeah. I, um, I'm trying to think of someone who like genuinely retired and then genuinely. Well, came Kleisters back. did. Kleisters retired once yeah. and then came back and immediately. Oh, her won first a slam. comeback was good. Yeah. But she so. was she was younger and what have you. And even then, I thought that was a bit of an indictment on the WTA that somebody like just wouldn't happen in the men's game. That you couldn't you couldn't be out of the game for two years. Um, do do the equivalent of the physical equivalent of having a baby, which mm. is f- like from I, don't know, I obviously do not know, but from what <laughs> I understand, is quite fatiguing. Um, yeah, they say they say yeah, yeah. And yeah, then to come tiring. and just immediately be the best player on the tour again is yeah, especially seen as like Kleisters was very good, was a very very good tennis player. It's not like she was the best tennis player of all time though. Yeah. I mean, yeah, and she came back in that that moment in 2010-11 when, like, I think Wozniacki was world number one and obviously had never won a slam. And, you know, there was, it it was definitely, and I I hesitate to use the phrase weak era, but it was definitely an opportune moment to to come back into the the game. Someone like Tatiana Maria is probably quite a good example, though, of someone who really did have a long time out of the game. Yeah, yeah. She did start a family. And, okay, she was never world number one, but she came back, got to Grand Slam semi-final that that was pretty yeah, yeah. impressive and good but I mean I, I'll be honest George like that was not a name that was going to come into this conversation unless you said it I wasn't <laughs> I wasn't going to bring up Tatiana Mari <laughs> much as I like her and I like she was really good fun around Wimbledon but when she made the semis I think I it's wasn't... more like it's it's more like that you know these players who had like the one slam and were quite good I'm not sure that there's the big interest in it. It's not, at least Kleisters was like, you know, I say she wasn't the best tennis player of all time. She's probably in the top 15 of all time. Reckon? Kleisters, I'd say so, yeah. She won. How time. many slams she win? Uh, four. Yeah, and I mean, she was world number one for a lengthy amount of time. Like, there's not... Yeah. The women's is like, once you get past the top six or seven, you then, like, you know, you're into the realm. I mean, of... I think the problem is you have you have to span eras quite a lot. Like, you have to go all the way back to, like, like, but you know, you go back to the seventies, really, like to the beginning of professional women's tennis, and that probably there's three or four candidates from there for top fifteen spaces, and then there's probably one or two from the eighties, a couple, maybe four from the nineties. And then, I mean, in like, fairness to in fairness to both Kleisters and um, Henan, yeah, Kleister and Henan, they won multiple slams in an era when the best, maybe the best tennis player of all time, was playing. And yeah. in a sister, one of the next, one of the other top 10, 12 players of all time yeah. was playing. Yeah, so, you know, I don't think you can, you can discredit that too much. But I think the thing is, like I say, with those, like with Ivanovic and Wozniacki, like even though they both won slams and were both, I think Ivanovic probably was world number one for a couple of weeks. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, then I don't think anyone saw them as like all timers. No, no, probably not. And they both retired as well. You know, and he's saying they both retired because they just weren't doing very well. Hmm. Right. In the um, in the interest of rewarding a listener who recently on the bottom of an email said, oh, by the way, your time management on certain topics isn't very good. Um, <laughs> we're going to move on. Yes, smarmy git. Uh, no, I welcome, I welcome feedback, especially constructive criticism. 
Uh, let's, I've actually just seen his questions <laughs> on my list. I'm going to blame you for that, James. Or <laughs> yeah, I mean that is directly my fault. Although you're both you're both wafflers, so I'll blame you. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. Um, let's move on to, uh, I'm going to say Laurie's question because it's a niche doubles question and Cal and can tee off on it. Uh, Laurie says, enjoying the pods, my top podcast on Spotify Wrapped. Yeah, if you are, if you do have us on your Spotify Wrapped, then like do tweet us at Unfiltered Tennis because we genuinely do get a big kick out of it. Quick question from Laurie. Could you elaborate on the key differences between playing Deuce and Ad as the returner's partner in doubles? Uh, I think I have an okay understanding of the general positions in regards to being in the hot seat, uh, different kinds of defensive volleys, both back, etc., but tend to play largely the same way on either side. What adjustments should be made? Uh, this is a genuinely really interesting question, George. But we'll get Calvin to answer it, I think. <laughs> it's not necessarily that different position, different moves should be made in different positions. It's more that it's mirrored. So if you practice, if you're a, say, if you're a juice player or you're an ad player and you go to the other side, it's just an unnatural position and, and certain things that you'd be looking for. So, and, and your perception of where that would be from that position of what you're looking for. So obviously if you play the ad side and you're looking to come across and poach, you've got the forehand volley, which mm. is kind of preferable because you've got more reach. Whereas the back, whereas on the juice side that you don't have as much reach. So what you can actually, what you perceive that you can get is different. But yeah. the actual moves and where you move to when the ball is hit and when you move don't really change other than they're they're just mirrored on the other does, side. Does that mean it? should should you cheat in terms of starting position based on the fact that you've got a bit less reach over to like No, like, no, no. Because you, you, you should you, mirror. Yeah, you can't cheat because the the starting position is based on what your opponent can see, and especially in, in our double system, the British double system, it's based on giving your opponent just enough room that they think they can pass you in a certain place. Right. Uh, and if they can do that, you're, you're basically challenging them. This is what I'm giving you. See if you can hit the ball there. Um, whereas if you cheat, you're giving them more space on that front, which you don't want to do. We're, we're basically aiming to make them miss. So mm. the starting position... Is, is that quite a common amateur mistake to, when you're on the juice side, cheat left a little bit, when you're on the ad side, cheat right a little bit? Uh, no, I'd say, what amateur, I'd say what amateurs tend to do is be too safe. Right. If anything, the same as one, well, not, they're not amateurs, but the same as singles players do. They tend to be too safe in their positions. They tend to think they overcover their line too much. Mm. Um, and and they rarely get past line, but they give way too much um, from the middle. But it's basically, like I say, it's basically the moves are the same from juice to add. It's just your perception of things and what you can get and that kind of thing and what your best volleys are and when you can move, change. And the whole, it seems strange to say it, but the whole court changes because it's not just a case of moving when you get the return. It's when the return goes line. What we tend to do is we tend to cross the center line to make the rally go cross court and to try and tempt the baseline player into passing you cross court. And then you cut it off with a diagonal step. But your perception of that, again, 
changes because you'll have practiced the diagonal step one way with your left foot and then you're going to do it with your right foot. So, mm. yeah, it's, so it's, what you're really saying it's is... practice. That's yeah. what if you, if you practice it, then you'll get it. It's not difficult. It's difficult to just switch up like that. And then there's some players that play both sides. Right. Um, preferably, I would prefer to be great at one side than than good on both sides. Right. Um, but there are so you know there are situations where you have to you have to change. Um, like you know, like Luke's played. Luke's played with Henry a couple of times this year, and one like kind of like as the higher ranked player, I guess Henry would take the side he wants, but also Henry mainly because Henry's left-handed, and you basically want the left-hander in the mid. Uh, you want the left-hander on the on the juice side, and that again is a returners partner thing because then if you have a, if you have a left-hander on the juice side and a right-hander on the ad side, both poaching movements are are with the forehand. Right, interesting. So play the same on both sides, basically, but it won't always be possible. Uh, interesting, Laurie. If you've got follow-up questions, feel free to um, drop. And it's also email. just just quickly, James. I, I find that's a, a, an interesting one as well, where you get like certain singles players on doubles. They go, oh, I can play both sides because they think it's the return. <laughs> right. They think again. They think it's just a return. Yeah, you can probably return as good on both sides, but your movement isn't the same on both sides when you're at the net. Interesting. Uh, if you've got a doubles question and you want a bit of free coaching from Calvin, then uh, tennisunfiltered at gmail.com is the way to get in touch. Uh, there's another one for Calvin here, so we've got to move past that, really. We'll come back. We'll come back, don't worry. <laughs> uh, Kathleen has asked a question that I know George will be dying to answer. Uh, Greetings, gentlemen. I was having a discussion with a friend in light of US Open celebrating 50 years of equal prize money, and it turns out he listens to Tennis Unfiltered as well. I brought up Calvin's totally rational, logical explanation of why tours, tournaments across the board do not, cannot offer the same. We were wondering if the inability to pay equal prize money, uh, and who pay, and we're wondering if in the inability to pay equal prize money, who pays appearance fees? Sponsors, do they come out of the prize money pot? If they come out of the prize money pot, there are issues there are as few players obviously benefit at the expense of others. We're curious as to the answer to this and if there should be transparency as to which players are benefiting and by how much. As always, I always look forward to every episode and wait for the YouTube release. Thank you for the entertaining passage information. Sorry about no YouTube release last week, by the way, Kathleen. Uh, I can only apologise. It's, it's my fault and it's for complicated, boring reasons. George, you love talking about appearance fees. Um, where do they come from? Is that fair? Hmm. That's a really good question. I'm not, I'm not sure I have a perfect answer to this. Um, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't expect it to come from the player prize money pot, but I suppose if you think about it rationally, well, it, if they're putting money somewhere, then it, it, it probably must have done. Um, well, that's the thing, right? So pr- prize money is, is a split pay is, is like effectively split paid by the tours and the, and the tournament one way or another. Like, so Yes, appearance fees do come out of the prize money. But I don't, they don't, they but don't, I don't they think don't. they come from the tour, though. I think they'll come from the kind of tournament organisers, which aren't the tours. It's separate Calvin. money. They don't come from the player prize money pot because it wouldn't work um, in time-wise because the prize money has to be set out when the tournament's registered earlier on in the year so they yeah. know how much money there is. And it's only later in the year when when the the players will start, when the tournaments will start campaigning off or longer out in the year when the tournaments will start approaching players to come to the tournament and offering them money. So it's but, already... But, it, but the tournament has a set budget, right? Like if you're organising a tournament, you're like, this is how much money we're going to have to run this tournament. When, and obviously, as you say, Calvin, yes, you have to declare the prize money early on. 
But like, if you're like, we're going to try and spend about this much on appearance fees, but, therefore that leaves us this much prize. But they wouldn't, they wouldn't really know though. It's, it's, it, it's more likely to come from sponsors and that kind of thing. That's who yeah. want the, the tournaments there. And it changes with country. I mean, look, if it's in the Middle East, it absolutely doesn't matter. We know where the money comes from. Like, yeah. like it's irrelevant. Um, in America, they tend to be quite, the tournaments tend to have like, Again, like kind of like a college tennis, they kind of tend to have boosters who, you know, if word gets to them that you can can maybe get, you know, Taylor Fritz there, who's oh, quite see. a big name in America, then you think, yeah, you know, somebody will go, all right, well, you know, I'll chip a bit in, this kind of thing. I th- the, the other thing is, I mean, in, it, just on that point of whether you can plan for it, there, there would definitely be circumstances that you just wouldn't plan for. So like when Federer was going to be the oldest ever world number one by playing Rotterdam or whatever, they wouldn't have accounted for paying in whatever one to two million pounds or dollars or whatever. Mm. Um, that, but they'll have seen that as a huge potential revenue opportunity. It won't have come from the sure. prime money pot. It just would be money they thought was worthy of an investment to get the tournament's name out there. Um, so I don't think it's like necessarily a, comp- a straightforward linear relationship from that perspective. No. But then there are also tournaments where you can see, and a good example is Auckland, where it's clear that they're like, we are going to spend a decent amount of money on one big name in the women's draw each year. You know, they previously had Serena, they've had Venus, they've obviously had Raducanu last year, and this year, you know, there's clearly a strategy there to Mm. kind of lay out a bit of cash, get a name that pulls in a few tickets, and then, you know, the rest of the money is the rest of the money. But th- that's obviously run by um, Tennis New Zealand or whatever they're called. Yeah, um, I, so I, I think probably the answer is it's going to depend really greatly on different tournaments and different mm. circumstances. And, you know, okay, somewhere like Indian Wells doesn't need to pay appearance fees. But if someone like Larry Ellison's running the tournament, you know, that if he was owning a smaller tournament, he would probably have no problem occasionally putting his hand in his pocket if it was the right moment mm. to do it. Whereas not all tournaments in that sort of financial position but it's a good point about transparency i mean i know the ptpa of, of in in whatever capacity they have um wanted more transparency from tournaments and i i to be honest would welcome it i think i think you know tournaments throwing their books open and saying oh yeah we did pay this player x amount to come and play here i i think that'd be great and I, I know they will argue it's commercially sensitive information but if every tournament with a license had to do it I mean, it would make the Saudis very happy because they would know exactly how much they had to pay. But I, I mean, um, it'd be an interesting conversation for someone like Novak to have with the rest of the PCPA when they saw how much he's getting in a fee with fees, I'm sure, <laughs> and then claiming there's not enough money in tennis to go around. I mean, that would be an interesting conversation because, yeah. you know, we're occasionally talking about slams having too much money at the back end, whereas I think if you tossed up the appearance fees throughout the year for certain big names, particularly during the Federer and Nadal era, um, I don't think that accounting would be viewed particularly favourably by other parts of the tour. And and it you know it would if we're to take Novak Djokovic at his word, which you know you can or you can't, whatever he says, he wants it to make it easier for those you know renting a hundred and two hundred to make a living out of the game. Public publicising the appearance fees of the top players would certainly make the argument for paying those players ranked hundred to two hundred much easier because you'd be like he doesn't need two million quid for winning that grand slam like he made two million quid playing two tournaments at the beginning of the year um so it it, it would be interesting i would wager it'll probably never happen 
There's no, no chance it ever happens. <laughs> so it wouldn't be in the interest of too many people to do it. The players won't yeah. want it. Um, won't want it putting out there. The tournaments won't. The main reason the tournaments won't because they don't want all the other players to know how much the money they're playing paying all the other players. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, right. Thanks for your question, Kathleen. Uh, love hearing from all of our listeners, uh, irrespective of how. Reg- I, I think Kathleen is a regular listener for several years. I recognise the name and the email address. So uh, thanks for being part of it. Um, I, I've got a question that I've had in the inbox for a while from Laura. I'm not going to ask it because it, it has allegations of corruption and match fixing that I cannot even pose as a question without, <laughs> without libeling so many people. But Laura, I just want to say I've read your question um, and thank you for it. But I can never ask anyone else <laughs> to answer. I, I want to know what it. I, I want to know. know. You can have to I, tell I, us. I, off, I will happily share it with you uh, <laughs> privately. But I think we would go bust within about half an hour if we actually tried to answer it. So instead, I'm going to go to Rahul, uh, who asked a question back in March, which we read out on the podcast and uh, took some time with. Uh, he asked back in March, who are the players, both ATP and WTA, outside the top 50, who could make a giant leap up the rankings this year? This is your opportunity to line yourself up for an I told you so in December. Uh, and he got back to us and said, replying to the very tweet, Rahul, you're very organized. Hello, question for the pod, please. I had asked this question above in March, which you folks kindly answered. The names mentioned were Linda Noskova, Linda and Brenda Fratova, uh, Dino Prismich, uh, Leandro Riedi, Jack Draper, Andy Murray, and Emma Raducanu. As we reach the end of the year, did they meet your expectations? Discuss. I'm hoping I didn't bring this up last week. As I read it out, I feel like I might have done. But no, we just discussed it in our WhatsApp group, didn't we? Um, well, I, I, I've done some maths on this. And the big winner here, I'm so reluctant to say, is Calvin. Because he picked <laughs> out uh, Prismich, who was at the time... Well, the beginning of the year, I should say, ranked 524. He's now ranked inside the top 170. Calvin, have your moment of glory. Bask and tell us just why and how you're such a genius. Uh, that was a bit lucky, actually, because I actually was in a tournament in Portugal in the first week of the year, and I saw Prismic play, and I thought then this is a pretty serious player. I spoke with a couple of Croatian guys um, who knew him, and they told me they had really high hopes for him, or the, the, the national governing body did and you know they tend to know their tennis um the national the croatian national governing body so and he was he was just really impressive both in his style of play tennis and also his mentality and attitude and character seemed like real real top level stuff Uh, i know they've got really serious hopes for him and in terms of they think he's going to be a top 10 in the world player um for anyone who's not seen him he plays a lot like andre rublev both in mm. terms of tactics and his actual shots look a lot like Rublev. I think he's okay. probably got a little bit more feel than Rublev, but not the most feel you've ever seen. But yeah, that's that's kind of what you can expect. Um, if anyone's interested, he he won uh, his first or he won his first ITF title in October 2022, senior that is, uh, and he then won his first challenger in August of this year in Banjaluka. He's the junior French Open champion this year as well. Um, but I suspect, well, he's aged out of genius for a start, but he might well even be in main draw French Open by the time we get round there um, next year. Uh, the other names mentioned, George, could, could you, did you take Leandro? Oh, no, it was Calvin yeah, who took Leandro Reedy, right? James, I was literally about to say, uh, 
you've read all those names. I couldn't tell you a single one I actually said. <laughs> I've no idea like how well or badly I've done in this. Like, <laughs> well, I took Lyndon Oscar, um, yeah. uh, for for ninety one at the beginning of the year to forty one. So I I think I'm reasonably pleased with that. Um, she, again, she's someone who played very well at juniors, and also she's Czech. Uh, as are Brenda and Linda for Vitova, who I think George were your actual picks. So um, they've gone from Linda's gone seventy eight to ninety two, <laughs> so oh. great. And uh, Brenda's gone one three nine to one ten. Um, so steady progress there. Where is um, Reedy James now? Uh, Leandro Reedy. I've written down two six one, but that might be uh, inaccurate. I'm going to check again. Yeah, he's kind of stalled a bit in the second half of the year. Still I think. two six two six one is correct. Yeah. Um, so yeah, work to do that. I mean, he's in a really interesting bit of the rankings. Just looking at like that that ten because he's two places below Tennis Sandgren. Remember him? He's two places above Brandon Holt, who I believe is Chris Severt's son. No, she's Tracy Austin's. Son. Tracy, Tracy Austin's Austin. son. There you go. Big fun. Um, and then three places ahead of Mikhail Kukushkin, who's just a hilarious player to watch. So um, I, I'm all for more players from 260 uh, and between 260 and 270 getting involved in big tournaments, clearly. Uh, Rahul, I'm sorry that that wasn't more exhaustive, but uh, we'll do it. Uh, we did do it a couple of years ago and then we abandoned it, but we will. I think we'll try and bring it back, George, our uh, picker youngster for 2024. And, uh, yeah, we'll see, we'll see what we'll... Do this time is we'll actually write it down to ourselves at the time and <laughs> put it on WhatsApp as player of the year. We'll have, yeah, some accountability yeah. would be good, so I we can find that's, it. Some, that's the biggest something issue. we very much lack on this podcast. Um, but anyway, when I build our website, then it'll take pride of place there. <laughs> right onto a question from Rajesh. Uh, you, you'll note that this came in a couple of weeks ago, uh, as by the first sentence. Hamad Medvedevich just won the next gen finals. I remember his father saying Djokovic supported him financially, socially, and mentally. I feel this is one of the great legacies Djokovic will leave behind after he retires. If this doesn't reflect what kind of great human being he is, I'm not sure what else does. My question is, are there any star players who've done this before? Murray from the British lads or Rafa for Spanish players? Um, I think we have actually talked about this a little bit a couple of weeks ago. So I'll move on to Rajesh's second question, which I think is going to light both of you up much more. Talking about coaching and other costs, I want to understand your team's perspective about Muratoglu hosting his one-hour class for $7,500. I understand the coaching is a bit expensive, but in his role and having an academy and being a former coach of top players, I felt disgusted about it. Why does he want to earn that way for one class? Not sure whoever is taking it will achieve anything in that one hour. I do coaching and I charge about $45 to $50 an hour one-on-one, my travel time and other things included. I almost spend an hour to two hours uh, to achieve what I want for the class. The other reason I do is I love tennis and I want kids to enjoy it and grow the love towards the game. Um, Calvin, uh, do you charge, is it is $7,000 an hour you charge? Is that right? right. For those unconfirmed. Unconfirmed. <laughs> to, to be negotiated on the spot. Um, <laughs> I mean, have you ever heard anything like it? I mean, it's it's absolutely ludicrous. It's absolutely ludicrous. I know that there's talk of like some American coach like Rick Macy charges $500 an hour. And if anybody who's paying anything like that to anybody needs their head, needs to give their head a real good shake. Because that is like absolute nonsense that you could do anything in an hour that could remotely warrant that amount of money. Like, and especially it, even with a really good coach. If it, it still wouldn't be warranted paying anything like that amount of money, but when you're going to give it to Patrick Muratoglu, you really need to. I'd say give your head a hit, not a shake. <laughs> to, 
possibly spoken about this before, but do, but do we know any idea what the most the best paid coach in the world is? Kind of in the program, I'm just trying to work out in my head what what they'd be paying per hour or something. I mean, do we know like what someone like Wimfersett would be commanding compared to like? I mean, it tends not to be else. per hour, right, Calvin? Like it just doesn't work like that. Yeah, yeah, but I'm just but then I'm guessing. Like, I'm one just very, to say, what would you then break it I down? Mean, apart from one very famous player who we've discussed in this podcast who still pays their, likes to pay their coaches by the hour, um, then no, no one pays by the hour. Um, but um, I I mean, I think I just sort of sli- on the topic, but slightly off it, I think that I always find it bizarre and I always have done the idea of t- tennis players or any at any level getting one hour individual coaches i find uh, individual lessons i find odd because it's such a i don't find it productive to do that i've always found like my most productive coaching is in groups doing doing group sessions and then if a player needs a bit of individual help taking them on another court for 10 10 15 minutes and doing a bit of work and sending them back into the group setting to be able to play i find it to, to be even for me and I'm I'm a good coach to be spending an hour with somebody specifically isn't particularly helpful to them um I find it even more unhelpful when I go to certain places Spain and America in particular where the coaches just stood there with a basket just feeding balls and going yeah good shot good shot that's it follow through follow through more legs and then going that'll be 80 quid please <laughs> or that'll be 1000 euros please i guess um without wanting to defend patrick too much like he doesn't charge everyone seven and a half thousand dollars and i have no doubt that the reason that is listed at that is because someone will pay it you know Patrick's well got that's big, it that's big it school in the middle east you know he's got, obviously got a big name someone's got money that, that someone doesn't know the value of seven and a half thousand dollars and you know um, like like the coaches in the states like rick macy and was it rick macy who you interviewed james yeah, he's been on the yeah. podcast, in fact. Yeah, um, you know, there'll be some idiots in Florida who will pay that for their kids and not even register that they've paid it. George, did you did, did you want to admit to having paid that kind of money for a lesson? No. George's had one with Bolletieri, haven't you, George? Yeah, yeah I don't I Yeah, don't how much you pay for that? that? No, nothing. It was, um, <laughs> it's a good rate. It was, yeah, it's because um, our coach at the tennis club used to play with him at Bolletieri, so he'd did him a favour, like six thirties to with some of the kids from the club. I, see, nice okay. um, I mean, we obviously paid to go and play in Bolitari for a week. So I can't remember <laughs> how much that was. So yeah. Not not that free, I guess. But um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I was I was going to kind of slightly tongue in cheek. So I've, I've seen people in the world pay for a lot worse, pay huge amounts <laughs> of money for a lot worse than they are. Patrick. I mean, you just been to Thailand. I'm sure you paid a lot more for a lot less. To be fair. Uh, that was well. That wasn't the example I was thinking of. I, 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 to be honest, I, I, I was thinking of more like paying to have your pet do something for them. George, yeah. that's bitchy, and we don't do bitchy. It comes across as snide, apparently. Um, right, come on. Uh, I've got one about warm ups and one about coaches. Well, I tell you what, I'll, I'll bring I'll, I'll bring us smoothly onto a question about coaching from Matthew who says, before you read out my question, I just want to say thank you for all your fabulous podcasts this year and wishing you guys all the very best over the Christmas period. Thanks, Matthew. Um, I'm going to have a Christmas with my family, so uh, it it won't be brilliant. Uh, My question is for Calvin, uh, as he's the only one old enough to remember watching this player throughout his career. That's very mean. Um, 
A question often is asked when a player should ditch a coach and refresh their team. This was a conversation constantly around Tim Henman and his relationship with David Felgate. For me, I believe Henman had the ability but lacked the minerals to seize the big opportunities. 2002, Aussie Open, the one Thomas Johansson won. Henman became the highest seed left at one point. Favourite to make the final, but the pressure was too much and he flopped against Borkman, Bjorkman, Jonas Bjorkman. We know about Goran in 2001 and also in 1999, Wimbledon, when Sampras was playing dreadfully until the final, nearly KO'd by the Philippusis, and yet Henman underperformed in the semi-final. What are Calvin's thoughts on Henners? I hate that nickname. Uh, when he under- Whether he underperformed and does he think a change of coach would have made a difference? Calvin, you're probably going to have to declare some interest before this answer, aren't you? Um, yeah, I know Dave Felgate. I know him well. He's a friend of mine. Um, <laughs> but um, And, and I, how I, much did I, he I, hold back Tim Henman from being a multiple well, Grand Slam champion? <laughs> I was pretty sure not at all. I mean, how many <laughs> Tim Henman did? They did split and Tim Henman carried on. And how many slams did he win after that? <laughs> <laughs> the same amount as he won with him. So, um, I mean, I, on a sort of genuine note, like, as someone who remembers Henman's career well, and like I, I grew up with Tim Henman, whereas you were kind of already working in tennis at the time, like what, what do you think was the? Did he just did he reach the peak of his ability? I think so. Yeah, I think you you know I think he would come out. He'd be one of the players who finishes his career thinks I did what I could have done there. Now look, things happen where you can you know that there are players. Is he as good as some of the players who won slams? Yeah, of course he is. He's he was he was a I'd say he was a better player than Thomas Johansson, but you have these freak slams occasionally. Mm. that happen and you know like and 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 somebody will win them you know the draws open up on one side and somebody has a nightmare match and that kind of thing but i i don't think he would i'd find it i think that's kind of what he was he was one of the top five players in the world for about seven or eight years Mm. and that that is legit he happened to be playing in a time though when agassi sampras latter stage becker those guys were around and and then hewitt came along and um even he got a bit in a dal at the end and that kind of thing. So I don't, I think, you know, he beat some very good players in his time. I don't necessarily think he was a bottler. I, I don't at all. I think he had very good bottle. You know, he's just, but sometimes you need to be able to actually win the matches and his tennis, he was, you know, for anyone who saw Tim, he's, he's not a big guy. He's very slight. He was an ex of one of the best volleyers of all time. He had a decent serve, not a great serve. He was okay off the ground. He moved pretty well. He had a great slice. But, you know, tell me players who... Tell me another player who's won even a slam or multiple slams who you would describe as great volleyer, okay serve, move quite well, okay ground strokes. Leighton Hewitt? Hewitt was had great ground strokes. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I struggle to name one there. George, you wanted to say something. Well, I was just, I mean, it's, it comes back to this age old question as well, isn't it? Like, w- would you swap like Tim Henman's career for someone like Sloane Stevens, where they've won one slam, reached a final? I don't know if you get in the WTA events, to be honest. No, no. Well, okay, well. <laughs> or, yeah, I, I'm sure the better male equivalent. But, but the point stands. Well, Thomas Johansson. Or Thomas Johansson. But Greg Rosetsky, like, technically, you know, reached greater heights than Tim Henman, right? Like, got to the final of a Grand Slam, at one point held the world record for the fastest ever serve. But he wasn't as good a player as Henman. No. But that, like, that's the question, isn't no it? I mean, strangely, the question, career, no. everything else, like other than the Slam final, like, actually looks similar. Like, career highs. Yeah. I think they both won a few Masters. I think Tim, Tim only won, won one, right? He won, won Paris. Uh, 
I Did think. he? Greg I, won I, Paris I, as well, though, didn't he? Right, I'll tell you. Uh, Henman won one. Uh, can, can anyone name who Henman beat to win his only Masters Yeah, it's title? Andre Pavel, isn't it? It is Andre Pavel, yeah. It's only because um, I know Andre Pavel. But I know. <laughs> right, okay. He got to three. He won more Masters doubles titles, actually. He won two Masters doubles titles, both in Monte Carlo. Um, okay. Whereas Rosetsky, and I'm getting there, won uh, one Masters title, also Paris. Yeah, um, I think he beat Sampras in the final. He did beat Sampras in the final, yeah. Um, so yeah, actually, yeah, weirdly similar careers in in some sense. But but uh, you said, I mean, weirdly similar careers when you look at just the bare facts as that, but kind of similar to the old Murray and Wawrinka thing of like, well, Murray they both won three slams, but yeah. then you look at beyond it, like Murray was just way better in terms yeah. of, I mean, he won way more Masters, but Tim was ranked in the top five in the world way more than Greg was. Yes. I don't know if that's answered the question, but I, I yeah, hope Matthew, I, you've enjoyed the Henman chat. We don't know the, the question. Chat. The question was, I don't. I, it, in answer to the question, I don't think he would have done any better if he changed coaches earlier. I think Dave was a good coach for Tim, and yeah. I think that Tim, you know, he got him. All you can ask from a coach is to take you to your potential, and I think I think he did that. And he changed. You know, Tim, you can't probably made a good move in that he thought a change was needed, but it didn't actually change anything in terms of results. It might have continued his career longer. But you know that's that's about where it was. George, did you did you have did you have? I thought you had something else. I'm sorry. No, he's rarely got anything interesting to say. Overshadowed as usual, George. Uh, right, very final question of the podcast, and in fact, the year. There are more in the mailbox that have come in the last week, but I, I took a big sweep uh, last week, and I, I we'll pick up. Um, I'll just name check some people: Nikos, Drew, Colm, Andy. Uh, I will try and get back to you all and we'll try and get your questions in uh, in the new year. But our last question comes from Tom. Just listen to your most recent pod. This is a slightly old one. And don't agree with your takes on the five-minute warm-up. I thought this would be relevant because there's no warm-up at um, UTS and it's quite interesting to see it. While pointless for a big Masters quarters semis, the five-minute having a hit on a stadium court for someone 70 to 100 in the world, for example, could prove invaluable to allow them to settle and take in the stage a bit more. I do agree that for the latter stage of the tournament, they should bin it off as a, as a time waster. Maybe a rule where if it's the first time playing on a particular level of court, centre, C1, court two, then grounds, would be fair. So the time wasted during warm-ups is reduced over an event. Um, I know, I'm pretty sure you can have different opinions on this. George? Um, I can't remember the episode that prompted us to talk about this. When but I think we were doing preview next gen finals because they didn't have warm ups at next gen finals. Maybe you weren't here, George. Maybe I wasn't you here. It. That's probably why. I All right, talk to me about warm ups, George. I mean, probably as someone who needs about forty minutes to warm up for physical exercise. <laughs> I thought you meant in the podcast. I've always found warm ups a bit kind of long and pointless, to be honest. Um, I think they should have a, a smaller one where you can give broadcasters a quick few seconds to say, this is who's playing, here's a little bit of context about them, but I think it could be quicker than five minutes, whatever. Um, at, at the end of the day, I think I'm not sure a five-minute warm-up is going to help you that much taking the surroundings of a show court. I think you, you'll feel that more in a moment if you're up in the match and there's a and you're actually feeling the pressure rather than just rallying a few balls over the net. Um, so I don't, I don't particularly buy that. But 
yeah, I, I think they could be reduced as well. I'm not a huge fan of them. Calvin, I don't know if you ever found yourself in a situation where a player said, oh, thank God I had six minutes warm-up, otherwise I'd have really shat it on that big court. <laughs> no, I, I think there's merit in what... The, 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 if there's merit in the question. I think it's you know it does hold up. But at the end of the day, I think you've got to look at the product and I think the product would benefit from not having warm-ups. And, you know, your players are either going to win or they're going to not. If they can't deal with it other than they can have a five-minute warm-up, they're probably not going to win the match. Hmm. So... Um, I don't think it would make the world a difference in that respect. I think there's, you know, there's maybe a bit of nuance that you could have if, you know, matches they tend to have a not before time. Um, and if the not befores were made a bit more realistic, then you can maybe go, look, if, if, if we're on, if we're before the not before time, or even then like the player can go out and hit if there's time on the, they can go out and hit of their own accord. If there's 30 minutes free and they mm. want to go and have a hit, they can do that. But um I, I do think it as well, you know, some of these tournaments where you have, you know, like a, a the slams where you've got like six matches on some days, I think, you know, you're close to saving about three quarters of an hour by the time yeah. you've done the warm up and the sit down and everything from that. The, the, you can go down a big rabbit hole if you start doing this sort of calculation as well. But I, I did once read an article about how you could make a massive environmental impact by cutting warm-ups out as well in terms of like how many balls you use for warm-ups and things like that. Oh, right, yeah. Over the year. Like, we don't use any, because just... you use the same balls for the match. Do you? Surely not. Yeah, because that's why you have seven and nine. Uh, oh. I'd never even thought you... about that. You didn't, you didn't know yeah. that? Well, I just... I just, I just it's just I never occurred to me. Yeah, that's why you have seven... Like The first ball change after seven games, because you include the warm-up in that. I thought it was something to do with like making sure the ball change wasn't right at the end of the set, or that no, it might but it's because of the warm up. And then but that's that, why when when a match that is gets still abandoned, the same though, Calvin. That's why, it's why when the match gets abandoned, you have the um, you play you warm up with different balls the next day, and then they change them back to the match balls. Right. Yeah. But it would I, still I just, have the same impact, I, wouldn't it? In mm -hmm. terms of you just turn it to nine, so you actually it'd be the yeah, same. the balls would be the yeah, same. The you'd still yeah, use no. the same set of balls. No, but you'd cut out. You'd added two games every time. So you'd use overall. Fewer you balls would over lose, the year. use fewer balls. No, you'd lose the time. Yeah, you because would. How would you? Because you'd still use. Because you'd be using them for the actual match. Yeah, but yeah, you'd but go from you'd seven and nine to nine and eleven. Into it. Yeah. So you're you're using. No, you just the... have nine and nine. You just be nine and nine. Yeah, but you get two extra games per match, don't you? In theory. But the actual time would. spent, no, but yeah, in the games, as in the, the amount of balls spent, used, the time the spent with those used. balls would be the same. Yeah, but no. but like there'd be the matches, the the time spent on court is shorter, and therefore yeah. you're spending less time hitting tennis balls, and therefore you're using fewer tennis balls, right? Um, I don't know if that's. I mean, yeah, if, if you're right. <laughs> but I don't, uh... I don't think we're protecting the ozone layer necessarily. <laughs> <laughs> I did say it was a deep rabbit hole to go down, but it was, it was an interesting article. It was. Uh, right, I'll tell you what, I've got one more deep rabbit hole, uh, courtesy of an email from the LTA. Uh, I'm not going to read the whole email, but thanks, Ben, for sending over a few bits and pieces from last week. Now, I have often asked, and I've always been frustrated, that when I've asked, why does All England give LTA 40 million quid or however much a year? I've always been told, well, they just sort of do. And uh, it's always been fudged. Now, I have got a specific answer. The first formal relationship between the All England and LTA was in 1913, when the LTA was offered the title of World Championships on Grass Courts by the ITF. 
The LTA approached the All England with a proposal that the World Championships should be held at the same meeting for all the different men's and women's singles and men's ladies and mixed doubles, and that the club should be invited to hold them. The LTA sanctioned the championships and in return received a share of the profits. The first formal agreement was signed in 1922, and there have been various updates since then. The most recent update was in 2008, when the LTA sold its 50% share of the grounds company to the All England in return for a capital sum of £55 million and a 90% share of the profits until 2054 and 70% between 2054 and 2074. Uh, someone somewhere will find that really interesting. Uh, one of those people is me. I mean, it's also, there's another reason that it can, and people have disagreed with me on this. I know Simon Briggs disagrees with me on this, but the major tournaments are run by the governing bodies. Right, the LTA, the like Wimbledon couldn't run a major because the deal with the ITF is with the governing body. They mm. just run it at Wimbledon. The LTA, if they want it, could go right. We're not holding it there anymore. We'll have the the British Open. Yeah. It's going to be which, run... which is, I think, is what exactly what what that email kind of says. Yeah, um... but then you know, I mean, the argument is that Wimbledon could go. No, no, we're going to do it, and then it would just. But I can't. I don't really see how they could run it without the LTA. They need the LTA as much. It's it's really is a fifty fifty type thing. They both need mm. each other. Yeah. in order to be able to to make that kind of money. Well, there you go. Good to end the year on a point of pedantry um, <laughs> and, and on a point of disagreement between two great minds of tennis in yourself and Brixie because that's what this podcast is all about. Um, I just want to take a second. I, I know you're going to listen to us a couple more times this year, but this is our last live podcast, so, so to speak. Uh, and I just want to say thank you to all of you who have made an effort to listen to the podcast this year, who've emailed in, who've tweeted in, who've followed us on TikTok and Instagram, who've subscribed to the nascent newsletter. Um, we've never had so many people listen to or download the podcast as we have over the last 12 months. There have been literally hundreds of thousands of you. It's been um, quite humbling, very exciting. Um, it's brought with it, in some ways, as many challenges as it had benefits, but I'd like to think many more benefits. Um, you will notice some improvements over the next 12 months, hopefully. You've noticed some already. Um, but most importantly, all I can say is please do have a great Christmas, if that's your thing. If not, have a good December, have a great New Year, and most importantly, as always, leave us a five-star review. Five, four, three, two, one, zero. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. Podcast Network. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.